farmers are at the sharp end. With the weather, they are definitely carrying the most risk, but then there's massive volatility in global commodity prices. We need to look at cereals as underpinning all of our food system. I used to look at it as being trees. I think trees are vital, but I think considering the amount of food that has some form of cereal in it, if we were able to turn that around, we turn everything around. Welcome to Cereal from Farmerama. This is episode three. Farms produce food. Focusing on bread and seeds, the first two episodes in this series told stories of change. Change from integrated systems to linear production lines, from hands-on craft to high-tech industry, from local distinctiveness to global uniformity, and from diversity to homogeneity. In this episode, we'll hear what those changes look like in the context of cereal farming. We'll learn how the way we grow our cereals affects the health of farmers, consumers and the planet. And we'll explore some of the ways farmers are reclaiming their autonomy, detaching themselves from exploitative commodity markets, rebuilding connections with seed breeders, bakers and consumers, and once again finding reasons to celebrate diversity and distinctiveness. As we heard in episode two, modern hybrid wheat varieties have been specifically bred to fit into a model of farming that uses external inputs to grow monocultural crops. It's a model referred to as conventional, although in the context of agricultural history, it's only been the convention for a very short time. A more accurate term might be chemical farming, farming that's based almost entirely on chemistry and chemical inputs, rather than biology. Chemical farming can take lots of different forms on lots of different scales, with widely varying degrees of intensiveness. At its most intensive, I'd argue that it fails to see soil as an ecosystem, with insects, worms, microorganisms, fungi and plants all interacting with each other in complex ways. Instead, it sees soil more as a blank canvas. It relies on the belief that fertility can be manufactured, purchased and applied in the form of nitrogen-based fertilisers, as opposed to being gradually built up through careful stewardship of the land. Likewise, it sees pests and weeds as problems to be eliminated, or at least controlled, with synthetic chemicals, not as natural phenomena that a balanced system will keep in check. And it sees diversity as awkward and inefficient, so it strives to minimise and marginalise it. Bred for uniformity and bulk, the grain of chemically farmed modern cereal varieties is generally sold to middlemen, to traders, not as a distinctive foodstuff, but as a generic commodity. Overall, as a system... It's very, very efficient if you don't count any of the consequences. That's Andrew Whitley from Scotland the Bread. It's kind of tempting to end the episode there, and frankly the whole series. The current system is very efficient if you ignore its consequences. I think that when we put together that lack of diversity in the cereal crop and indeed in many of the other food crops that we grow, and we see 
that's sitting very uncomfortably between soils where there's a widespread recognition now, even among non-organic farmers, that diversity is key to the healthy functioning of soils. Diversity between the microorganisms in the soil, which perform different and often symbiotic functions. And then the stomachs, where the diversity is increasingly seen as a key principle. You know, all the talk about probiotics, prebiotics, and the attempts to increase the the diversity of microorganisms in the gut. Between those two things, not to mention any downstream things like the societies we live in, we've got this massive monoculture, which I think feeds through because it's so dominant, really, as a system and as the essence of the food that we're often eating. It feeds through in an insidious way into certain monocultures of the mind, if you like, which have been talked about for quite a long time, where people see things in a very closed and uncritical way because that appears to be the only way you can achieve your objectives. But if your objectives are maximizing shareholder value or whatever it is or or achieving GDP growth in an inexorable way as though the environment you're doing it in isn't finite, if those are your objectives then it's not surprising that you will get uh, perverse effects coming in. Industrial chemical cereal farming and the commodity market it supplies might seem efficient in its own terms if all you're looking at is a narrow definition of the financial bottom line that relies on maximising yield in a single year. But if you broaden that definition to include other factors, like the impact on farmers' livelihoods and their mental health of an unpredictable commodity market, the ecological costs of pesticide runoff and nitrate pollution from fertilisers, the washing away of topsoil into streams and rivers, the loss of biodiversity both on farms and around them, the carbon footprint of long-distance distribution networks, the health costs to farmers and consumers of routine herbicide use, and so on. In short, what economists refer to as negative externalities. If you count those things, then our current approach no longer seems like a very efficient way to feed ourselves. The industrial cereal system does not provide us with cheap food. It's just that we pay the price indirectly, everywhere but at the checkout. We pay for it through our taxes, through donations to the charities that mop up the mess, through the wearing away of the natural systems we all depend on. And that true price is becoming more and more difficult to ignore. Wheat and cereals in general are possibly the most intensive form of agriculture in the Western world. That's Stephen Jacobs from Organic Certifier Organic Farmers and Growers. The soils are suffering. We know this. We've got visual evidence. There is more and more scientific assessment to prove it. In order to save our soils so that we can continue to eat off our soils for the foreseeable future, having that circle that includes ecologic and economic fairness is essential. But what we're talking about here is how do we get from where we are to where we want to be. In this episode, we'll be exploring some of the ways we might move to a different situation. A situation in which farmers are fairly compensated for their work. In which our supply of grain is more resilient in a time of climate crisis. In which we're not beholden to tenuous distribution chains and volatile markets and in which we once again value diversity and regional variation, not only because it's necessary in an environmental sense, 
but also because it makes life more interesting for everyone involved. And maybe more joyful too. Let's start by hearing from two farmers about their experiences. Both of them have been on, and are still on, transformative journeys, from chemical agriculture to lower input and regenerative farming, from a linear to a more circular approach. Um, first of all, can you just tell me who you are and however you'd like to describe yourself? Okay, I'm Fred. I'm a farmer in Somerset, which is the southwest of the UK. I've been farming for 10 years. I took over a family arable farm. My name's Mark, Mark Lee. I'm a farmer here in Shropshire uh, with my wife Liz. This is where we've been for forever. We've been organic here for nearly 20 years and this, uh, this is the centre of everything that we try and achieve. Let's start with Mark. Around 20 years ago, Mark was a few years into his farming career, having completed what he describes as a traditional agricultural education. And we were farming in a very normal and ordinary way, but just increasingly concerned about the way farming was going and the way our farm wouldn't have a place in that. Partly because I just didn't feel right, partly because it wasn't big enough. We were a small farm. We're still not a big farm. We're only 450 acres now. It's not a big farm in terms of non-organic. In fact, we're irrelevant. We're so small in terms of non-organic. So I had the first period of my farming life trying to compete with people who were much bigger than me, producing commodity crops. And that was never going to work. And it was a sort of realisation that was never going to work. So that was the practical side of it. The sort of emotional side more was that feeling that it was just wrong. And we were under increasing pressure. And I think this has been borne out. We were under increasing pressure to apply more with more accuracy and more haste and more, just more of everything, particularly pressure involved with both the selling and the application of AgChem. And we weren't going forward. I didn't feel like we were going forward. And I think time has shown that, in a way, that is what's happened, that non-organic farming hasn't really gone forward in yield terms. Yields have plateaued a bit. It's a very technical business now, and it just wasn't for me. That was the motivation to convert. Organic conversion was 2000. We were absolutely ready to do that. We weren't sure at the time we were ready to do it, but that conversion, although it was a long time ago now, really led to everything else. It opened the door to everything else, and every visitor or person that I've ever spoken to and every place that I've been to ever since has been because we converted so that change was absolutely crucial for me and I know that there's lots of people particularly now there's a growing movement of of regenerative farmers who are not organic and they're finding a middle way or they're trying to find a middle way through it but for me the key was that commitment and that change of mindset. A quick word on organic and low input farming. Like so-called conventional farms organic farms exist at lots of different scales with different degrees of intensiveness and different levels of diversity. That middle way Mark was talking about acknowledges that it's impossible to switch overnight from chemical to organic farming. It requires different tools, different knowledge, different machinery and infrastructure, and it requires time for the soil biology to recover. So while many farmers are now recognising that chemical farming is not the future, they're just at the start of a journey away from it. Some people refer to this as being on a regenerative agriculture journey, moving away from high-input, chemical-based farming towards lower-input approaches in which healthy, biologically active soils are key and the farm works with natural systems rather than trying to overcome them. Let's hear from Fred about his experience of this journey. He embarked on his farming career with an enthusiastically chemical approach. 
when I took it on, it was an arable farm. It was about 250 acres. And I think I had a real like complex about how small that felt at the time. And I was chasing yield and I was like, well, I'll show them, you know, I, I'll get 10, 12 tonne a hectare of wheat. Generally, I remember saying to my dad at the time, who's not from a farming background, but I was like, I'm going to turn my 250 acres into 350 acres by basically being more productive and being better. That meant chasing yield at all costs, although I didn't know the costs at the time. And they were both financial and also detrimental to what I am subsequently learning about the soil and everything. At the time, there was this like discourse about a yield plateau in that productive dream because incremental improvements are always being made in, in the genetic improvement of modern cultivars. But that wasn't being reflected in reality on the field. You know, the yields have stagnated since the late 90s. And so I was like, well, I think this is because, and my answer was soil. And that led me on this like two or three year journey to massively increasing my yields. One of those moments where you're really thinking about where you're going, who you are, like, because I achieved high yields, I did what I set out to do. I had the productivity. I was growing half the wheat that my aunt was. I was getting the same, if not more, in the barn, you know. But my bottom line was bad. I had overdrafts, I had high purchase agreements. Like Mark, Fred came to a realisation, one that caused him to change course. It was a shift away from thinking in terms of inputs towards thinking about cycles. Luckily, as so many things happened down to luck, luckily, one year, one of my crops, which happened to be spring barley, just behaved in an unusual way and it all went flat. And it was all on a seed contract for someone. So, you know, this is a big deal. I was like, oh God, if it rains now, we're going to be in trouble. And then when I stood back from that, I was like, well, why has it gone flat? Because I farmed it the same way. And I spoke to this guy called Mike Harrington, who's an agronomist, deals with a lot of organic farms in Oxfordshire. And he said, it's not about how much of anything, it's about things happening in time, you know. Basically, fertility is live, like it's, it's all about cycling. So then when he, when he said that, I was like, oh, cool, because clearly something is happening underneath my feet. The soil is like waking up to it. So I went down that rabbit hole really, really deep. Fred decided to narrow his focus. I think we're all guilty of overcomplicating it, so I wanted to boil it down to like one thing, and then I could measure all my decisions against that one thing. And that one thing for me was biology. Do everything you can to improve the soil biology and appreciate that the soil is live and that everything springs out from that. And specifically, he began to focus on carbon. What drives the whole system is life, and what drives life in the soil is carbon. How do you get carbon in the soil? It might be physical inputs of organic manures but the easiest cheapest and best way is like diversity of cropping and cover Uh, so cover crops over the winter the gaps in my production system perennial cropping mixed herbal lays rather than continuous arable production with big gaps between the cropping periods cover crops are basically what the name suggests their main role is not to produce a yield but instead to protect the soil so it's not bare and exposed what that does is prime the system with carbon, pumps carbon in the soil in terms of the biomass when you terminate the crops or incorporate them. But also, I think it's something like 20 or 30% of the carbohydrates produced through photosynthesis of a growing crop are exuded in the roots as carbon source for beneficial microorganisms that the plant benefits from, that basically primes the biological system of the soil. This is in contrast to how Fred used to work. For example, he'd routinely apply 250 kilos per hectare of nitrogen fertiliser to his wheat fields, followed by four or five applications of fungicide, all in the pursuit of those high yields. 
Fred thinks farmers can often feel trapped in this chemical system. And for him, the key to start breaking out of it was to reduce those nitrogen applications. When you start winding back your nitrogen, everything else follows. Because, for example, let me just give you like a, like a feedback cycle. If you're looking at a functioning ecosystem, which is what I'm trying to create, everything's about biology. So what does a non-functioning ecosystem look like, soil ecosystem? Well, it's driven by high nitrogen, for example, which means you have high weed pressure, high weed burden, which means you have to spray herbicides. Herbicides chelate some really key metals in the soil, like zinc and copper, key for plant immune systems. So you have a weaker plant that's prone to fungal infection. So then you spray four fungicides a year, and the fungicides degrade your soil biology more. Therefore, you have lower natural inherent background fertility. Therefore, you have to... So it goes off in different directions, but there's these little loops that you're totally locked into. And I think few people talk about being locked in. I definitely felt like that. That first three years of the high input, high output, not just financially locked in to a commodity chain, but like, you know, biologically locked in because your soils have no capability to do what soils should do. So both Fred and Mark have been on journeys of building their soil biology, moving away from a chemical-based, input-driven system to a more cyclical, regenerative approach. So far, so good, except they both hit the same stumbling block. I think I reached like a brick wall. I basically felt like I'd made improvements and taken my system as far as it could in terms of reducing my inputs. And I came across another bottleneck. The bottleneck I realised was now what variety I was putting in the ground. And I began to question whether the varieties that I was tapping into from the National Recommended List were appropriate to my system. There's two examples of that which really like crystallised it for me. One, the National Recommended List has trial sites across the UK and they monitor various parameters, they measure them, and then as farmers we go to it, it's our shopping list. But there are varieties that exist off the National Recommended List that for whatever reason don't make the grade. And we happen to have a really good trials farm about 40 minutes from the farm. And there's two varieties that never made it to the recommended list. These two varieties blew the national recommended list varieties out of the water. And I don't mean by 3, 4, 5%, I mean by 20%. And so I started thinking, well, actually, this gospel, the national recommended list, that's presented to me as this is your shopping list for varieties, the the pinnacle of crop development, actually in, in a very like regional level was not appropriate let alone a local level so that was one thing and then I happened to speak to an organic farmer and I said well you know what varieties are you growing and I could not believe it when he said he had the same varieties in the ground that I had and I was like but I can use herbicides and fungicides and insecticides and nitrogen and you can't I was like your crops must be terrible he's like yeah my crops are terrible (laughs) this general question that are modern varieties suitable for low input or organic systems answer no because modern wheat varieties are bred for chemical based high nitrogen systems they have shallower shorter roots they're not good at seeking nutrients themselves from the soil which is something crops need to do in a low input system what's the alternative for me i didn't want to take liberties with people having invested their time over 20 years then just jump in and say, well, can I have yours? So I went to the source, which is Gene Banks. And four years ago, we started growing out accessions from Gene Banks with as broad a phenotypic and age range as possible. Those are the parameters. 
obviously it wasn't my idea to find these heritage varieties. I happened to be talking with a baker called Ben Glazer, who works from Cornwall, and he bought a lot of his flour from Gilchester's. Gilchester's Organics is a family-run farming and milling business based in Northumberland. They've pioneered the reintroduction of heritage cereal varieties to the UK. I was really intrigued by the work that they were doing, so when the penny dropped, I had a sort of another like eureka moment. Andrew at Gilchester's and his wife, Belial, they have made the same sort of connection. Well, they'd made it before me, and I realised that was the missing link in my system. Modern varieties weren't suitable for their organic system, so... I saw this idea of looking at different plant breeding techniques and more diverse population mixes as a, a tool to unlock another level of regeneration that I could employ because all of the inputs that I still use, and I still use imp- artificial inputs, albeit less, I can reduce them further by building in more resilient varieties into my cropping system, I think. And since then we've been able to refine how we choose varieties, but that's basically the premise that we started with. You get a good age range, you know, from what's been growing in the 1500s or 1600s, right the way through to sort of early 20th century. Have a look at them in the field, see how they respond. And it was really impressive what I was seeing. So now that's all we grow. After Mark had converted to organic and was about to give up on growing wheat for similar reasons to Fred, he also had an encounter that changed his course. He was introduced to the YQ population developed by Professor Martin Wolf. YQ is the result of crossbreeding 20 different wheat varieties in every conceivable combination to achieve as much genetic diversity as possible. It's a very different proposition to the genetically uniform varieties Mark was finding so unreliable in his organic system. Martin asked if we would grow some of that to reproduce it in a western location here in Shropshire. It's only been grown in East Anglia at that point. So we put a small amount in, it was very late in the year, and I just completely fell for it. And like everybody else, fell for Martin and fell for the whole story. We were growing modern wheat alongside, and modern wheat yielded more. But the population did exactly what Martin said, and it was just behind, but it was, it was different. It felt really different, and we did that for the next couple of years. And we've continued to save our population wheat seed, and we still grow that. As we've learned, saving and re-sowing seed, rather than buying it in every year, is part of the logic of growing a population. The genetic diversity of a population means that, over generations, it adapts to the local environment. And while a genetically uniform modern variety might well yield more than a population in a given year, the next year it might be all but wiped out by poor weather or disease. The idea is that a population produces lower but more consistent yields, So, over several years, a population might end up yielding more. What they offer is resilience. In the face of climate change and unprecedented biodiversity loss, surely that's what we need. Here's John Letts. John has long been a pioneer of, and an ambassador for, heritage varieties and populations. I would say the advantage is uh, stability of yield, Resilience, I have never had a crop failure in all the years I've been growing this, and that's been, what, 12, 13, 14 years or more, actually, thinking about it, even more than that. They'll get through any weather. I don't have disease. They stand well above the weeds, so I don't have to worry about that very much. I have a thriving ecosystem. And we don't have a choice, let's face it. And, and I think these crops are the ones that are going to survive. For example, in Totnes, uh, there was a group called Grown in Totnes until recently. So they grew five acres of my mixed heritage wheat in the drought. Was that last summer or the summer before? So I went out to see the field, and all around it were fields 
of modern wheat, brown, tiny little flinty grains, you know, cracks in the clay soil they could practically fall into. And there was my field in the middle of it. And I have to say, it was an oasis of green. It was growing really well because it has these massive deep root systems. It was shoulder height, swaying in the wind. Yield was pretty good, 1.2, 1.3 tons. Made lovely bread. And all the fields around it were knee-high and dry as could be with their shallow root systems. So all the farmers looking around were thinking, what are they growing there? I'm going to grow some of that. Fine, the yield won't be as high as you want. But what counts in the end is what's in your pocket. And if you make three times the profit growing heritage grains with no effort, remember, as I said, you can plant it, close the gate and come back in the autumn. Farmers like that idea. So no equipment costs, you know, and think of the impact on carbon footprint, less diesel, you know, none of those sprays. I mean, the carbon, the energy consumed in creating all these agrochemicals is enormous, aside from the fact that they're destroying and sterilizing the, you know, the local environment. We're going to move to this. And that's where I think government and research and universities should be leading the way. And we have a lot of pressure to move. A side note, but an important one. Because heritage wheats are taller, they're also more prone to lodging when a plant falls over in heavy rain or strong winds. High nitrogen can also increase lodging because the plants grow weaker, skinnier stems. That's one of the reasons some farmers aren't so enamoured with heritage varieties. So one way of increasing diversity without risking widespread lodging might be to grow mixtures of modern and heritage varieties. The idea here is that the shorter modern varieties support the taller heritage ones. In fact, a successful trial of this approach has recently been completed, mixing John Lett's heritage population with Martin Wolf's YQ. There's something else to consider as we visualise a more positive future for cereal production. Most low-input farming relies on crop rotation. As well as wheat, Mark grows peas and oats, and he keeps cattle and sheep. As part of his regenerative journey, Fred has introduced pigs to his system, which used to be just cereals, and he grows alfalfa, also known as lucerne. So both of them now have mixed farms. And there's a reason for that. Here's Kimberly Bell, founder of Small Food Bakery. She'd taken me to visit Mark. I think it's important to talk a little bit more about the relationship between legumes, the relationship between peas and beans and wheat, because one of the things I gained coming to visit you here on the farm many times and learning about the crop rotation was really the importance of those crops in the context of what we wanted to extract from your farm system, which was essentially the wheat. Mm -hmm. Rotation is essential in organic. Depending on how intensive your non-organic is, you can get away with it more so, not having one. Continuous wheat is a thing in non-organic farming. It's unimaginable in organic farming. We can only really grow one field of wheat in our rotation, and our rotation is five years. So the maximum we've got is 20% of our farm in wheat at any time. So this farm's output of wheat is very much restricted, and its output of other things is inevitably higher, as Kim just said. We, we have to grow legumes... We're a mixed farm. We have grass and clover. Clover is the key to everything for us. So, just to be clear, on any one field on his farm, Mark will only grow wheat one year out of five. The other four years, he'll grow clover, which is grazed by livestock, and then peas and oats. In low-input or regenerative farming, instead of providing crops with artificial fertiliser, legumes act as a so-called green manure, 
adding nitrogen to the soil as they grow. Clover is a legume, as are peas, beans, lentils and alfalfa. What's special about these plants is that they have structures on their roots called nodules, and in those nodules live bacteria, with the ability to fix nitrogen. That means they take it from the air and convert it into a form the host plant can use to make protein and grow. As the legume grows, its roots and leaves are constantly dying and being replaced. And as these break down in the soil, they release the nitrogen, making it available to other plants. Crops like beans and peas, which are grown for their seeds, are called grain legumes. We need the clover to drive the fertility for the four years in between the clover crops. But we really need a grain legume to prop up the second half of our rotation. It's really not easy, but we couldn't really, I don't think, leave the rest of our rotation the same if we substituted the grain legume with something non-leguminous, if that makes sense. It needed to give us a nitrogen kick and a crop that was different, so it wasn't vulnerable to the same pathogens and diseases and it worked in a different way in the second part of the rotation. Here they are 20% of our area for that reason, or cropped area, and they need to continue to be so, really, at least. And I think it's had quite a profound impact on us as a team of bakers. It's given us a new sense of responsibility to the farm to try to use more of the crops that come from the rotation. And I think there are historical examples of breads that would have been made with much more of a respect for the entire rotation. But we somehow seem to have got into a place where we're essentially making a very homogenised product by just having wheat breads. And one of the things that's brilliant for us to get out on the farm and, and to just see a visual representation of how many peas are being grown, how many beans are being grown, just to achieve the wheat organically, which we want it to be organic, that's what the bakers want. But we also need to have a better understanding of what goes into that and the real long-term process. Yeah. That's one of the reasons we do the suppers on a Thursday night, is just so that we can get more beans and peas onto people's plates. You can't detach yourself from the network, and maybe that's one of the things that bakers really start to learn when they start to visit farms, is that every decision you make, whether you're a food producer or whether you're a food customer, it all has impact somewhere else. This is absolutely fundamental to organic farming. If there was ever a system where everything is joined up, I think it's fair to say this, that in non-organic farming you can short-circuit some of these things. You know, there's a tendency to feel as human beings that we're cleverer than nature and we can work around these, these sort of natural systems and, and, and overcome them, you know, with the extreme of that being GM perhaps. In an organic system we're very much more exposed to that. So that's why organic systems have to learn from and take advantage of natural systems but it's always that circular system and the complementary nature of all the individual things that we do, whether that's the rotation or the life cycle of a plant or an animal or a weed or a disease pathogen or whatever else, everything has to be considered. So as consumers, chefs and bakers, if we want nutritious, sustainably grown cereals, we also need to understand and make use of the other outputs that make that possible. Just as Kim said, I encourage the market to consume the system and then in doing so, the landscape and the way this farm feels and the way organic farms do feel, and not, not just organic farms, but farms that are farming with less intensity because if that's what we want, this is the way to get it. So what about Fred? From chasing yield to a cyclical biological understanding of fertility... 
to discovering non-listed and heritage wheat varieties, where has his journey taken him so far? Ten years on, we're now a mixed farm. I'd say farming quite progressively. By progressively, I mean all the elements of the system complement each other and add up to a system which is not reliant on input for output. And one that is more focused around sort of highly functioning, biologically driven fertility rather than chemical can-based agribusiness fertility. And one that also therefore acknowledges that you're producing value, not volume. You have to think about alternatives to commodity markets, think about smaller food with a human scale, by which I mean I know who all my customers are, they know who I am. So it's a, not just a biological shift in understanding of what's driving my whole farm ecosystem, and that's really my passion, but I think... The more difficult thing is like uh, the requirement to shift your entire business mentality and how your business operates away from commodity markets and yield towards value relationships and generally small, small scale. By which I don't mean local, I mean human scale. Value, relationships, human scale. What does that look like? Well, first of all, let's think about what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like commodity production. Gold is a commodity, crude oil is a commodity, and wheat is treated like a commodity as well. Commodities are basic, unimproved goods that are considered uniform enough to be directly interchangeable. Wheat from Fife, wheat from Shropshire. Wheat from Canada, wheat from Kazakhstan. Wheat for biofuel, wheat for booze, wheat for bread. Commodities are traded globally, shipped around the world, Speculators place bets on whether their prices will rise or fall. At its most cynical, it's gambling. It turns food into poker chips. Speculators have no direct relationship with the thing they're betting on, be it gold or crude oil or wheat. Fundamentally, a commodity system relies on standardization and bulk. So what does that mean in practice? Here's Kimberly Bell with one example. At the moment, most arable farms operate on something we defined at Grain Lab to be haulier economics. So rather than any other values being at play, one of the main sort of economic drivers of the whole arable farm system appears to me to be about the size of trucks. And it's just become about economic efficiency or supposedly become about economic efficiency because there's this kind of narrative of where you can't send beans, peas, grains off a farm in anything less than a 28-tonne truck, otherwise it makes them too expensive. When you start digging into that and you realise how many people's hands are in that money pot as a result of that scale, it really does call into question whether it is or it isn't a cheap way of doing things. Haulier economics means that the existing physical and economic infrastructure, including something as apparently prosaic as the size of trucks, that dictates what's grown and how. By valuing grain simply on the basis of weight, of volume, the focus for breeders and farmers is on quantity. And arguably, that's taken our focus away from the quality of what's being grown. What Andrew Whitley has discovered in his work at Bread Matters and Scotland the Bread is that research shows 
there has been a reduction in mineral density in cereals for the last 160 years. Some of that is put down to it being um, yield. So the more yield, the more volume, the less, you know, you sort of dilute the quality. It's also down to the fact that the plants are lazy. So in order to stop this, we need to appreciate a hectare of nourishment, not a hectare of volume in terms of weight. Farmers need to have a better return for their investment. Value understood as people nourished per hectare, not simply tonnage produced. Perhaps this could be a way to improve public health, ecology and farmers' livelihoods. Most people would argue that fairness in the system is most important. So we want farmers not to be over a barrel in terms of commodity grain traders or millers or whoever, or even financial interests speculating on the wheat market when things go a bit iffy, which is the besetting sin of our current financial system. But we want them to be paid fairly for producing food for their fellow citizens. It's no good saying, well, we'll just pay you to produce more and more and more without attending to A, what's in it, and B, where it's going. Valuing nourishment over volume might also help shift the focus away from growing cereals for biodiesel, animal feed and alcohol. Why are we not growing bread for people to eat? Why are we feeding cars instead or making booze out of it? If you were a visitor from another culture or planet, you might think this was a a strange way to deploy your best scientists, engineers and chemists in an agricultural system which seems hell-bent on ignoring the needs of real people. It's like so many things in life that we are sort of waking up from this crazy period that we've been through where farming has become an agribusiness that just produces mountains of stuff. And, and crikey, don't start me. Multiple retailers have sort of occupied the middle ground very effectively and they've separated consumers from producers very, very effectively and to their massive advantage, I think. And in doing so, we've created a situation where a large, very large number of people who eat food every day don't have any contact with food production at all or any particular interest or sympathy in it. There's a huge disconnect. Moving away from commodity production towards a different appreciation of value might also help catalyse a change in how farmers are perceived and perceive themselves. Here's a concrete example. Back in 2018, Mark Lee and his wife Liz hosted NOC, National Organic Combinable Crops. It's an annual gathering of organic producers. And Kim and Small Food Bakery did the catering for that, so we're involved with the preparation for that event. Having the small food team in our field and seeing how interested and engaged they were by the growing wheat crops. And that's something that we hadn't found before. We do loads of open stuff. We get the public here and loads of children here, but never before millers and bakers who reacted differently to our wheat than anybody else had. When I started bakery, I was very focused on looking sort of forward, as I see it, at the customers and trying to make a better connection between the baker and the customer. And it was only really when I got involved in the community at Knock and met you that I realised we had a job to do facing the other way as well. One of the things Kim did was to bake bread using Mark Lee's YQ grain and to serve that bread right there in the field. The idea that it was amazing to have the bread next to the trial crop yes. in the field. It shouldn't be amazing, Was amazing it? to yes. me. Like it was kind of, yeah. I was like, wow. And 
I've had the privilege to meet many, many farmers, all of whom I admire greatly, and they do incredibly complex work and produce the things that we need. But I'm often a bit shocked at how little they eat their own crops, and I do think there's an economic structure there that has come about, particularly with arable, that removes you and your family from Mm. being able to interact with the crops that you grow as food. One solution? Teach farmers to bake, which is something else Kim has done. I now go most weekends on a Sunday morning, get some wheat from my grain store, bring it here, mill it, takes about five minutes to mill enough for, for a loaf, take it home and bake it and we eat it for tea on a Sunday. It's always different and it's always, so they tell me, it's always uh, very nice. So we go in the grain store to get that out and that would never ever have happened because grain stores are stores that have hundreds of tons of grain in not food they have hundreds of tons of grain in and that's always the way that it was i'm still surprised it surprises me that i do it and i guess there's more you know there's more to be achieved there in the sense that we need we need to build on that idea but it does feel different it feels like it's food now so why does that matter Why should consumers care whether farmers see it as their job to produce commodities or food? I think we all need to be appreciated. In mainstream farming, there isn't a lot of appreciation. There's a lot of criticism, some of it justified and some of it not, but there's not a lot of appreciation. And that is is so powerful for us as producers. Being able to connect with not just the buyer, but the actual consumer makes makes it into a different thing completely and the more of the produce of this farm that can go that way the better i was like most other farmers in that i saw the harvest as being the end of the process that was the last day in the year apart from you know a bit of storage effort but generally speaking the harvest was the end of the process and then you would start again sowing the next year's crop once the crop becomes food Obviously, the harvest is just the beginning of that next phase. And whether it's looking after peas to stop them splitting or looking after wheat, now that is part of our business. I do educational access here, and for years and years and years, I've been talking to children here about what farms are for and what the point is. I've been saying to them for for years that farms produce food, and they need to understand that. But I now really do feel like we do produce food. I would also add that quality of life is a worthy goal. That's a yield too. We need more farmers. And if farmers are allowed to experience direct appreciation for their work, as well as a fair financial return, maybe that can have a positive impact on their well-being and help reverse the decline in farmer numbers and encourage people to see farming, or rather food production, as a desirable job. On which note, Here's Fred Price with a final word. All of the things I thought were my weaknesses, they are now my strengths. Mm, yeah. like you literally have turned the whole thing on its head. Yeah. Like small is genuinely beautiful. Mm. Couldn't be busier, couldn't be happier. In the next episode, we'll go in search of the next crucial link in the grain economy chain. The Millers. Serial is possible thanks to generous support from the Roddick Foundation. Subscribe to Farmerama to hear the rest of the series. You can find us on your favourite podcast app, on SoundCloud or at farmerama.co. If you enjoy the series, please spread the word. And if you'd like to support Farmerama, 
visit patreon.com forward slash farmerama. Serial is produced and edited by me, Katie Revel, with Abby Rose and Joe Barrett. Susie McCarthy and Hannah Sutherland also worked on the series. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. A huge personal thank you to everyone who's contributed to Serial. In this episode, we heard from Stephen Jacobs, Andrew Whitley, Fred Price, Mark Lee, and Kimberly Bell. Many other conversations have also helped to shape the series. We're really grateful for all of them. 